This morning we're going to be looking at First Peter, a book that helps disciple us on how to live the Christian life in good times and bad times. You can find First Peter if you'd like to do that. I'll begin with kind of a funny story um, while you're finding First Peter. Last Sunday, uh, at the end of the sermon, I was telling a story um, about my friend Scott Clark. Scott Clark is um, was visiting two weeks ago with his wife Barbara. He's a historical theology professor from Westminster Seminary in California, Oxford doctorate, smarty, McSmarty pants. Um, I respect him a lot, even though I'm joking, just really admire his work, benefited a lot from him. He's done a Q&A with us during a Sunday school before. I consider him a friend. So I'm telling the story last week, about the week before when Scott and Barbara were here, because they have relatives in town. And so I kind of made some fun jokes like I just did now and um, said after the sermon, I went and talked to Scott and Barbara and he said, oh, I have a commentary on First Peter. It's not published yet. I just sent it to you on Twitter. You can, and it's like, oh, great. You know, I just started First Peter and he's written a commentary on it. And it's just, anyway, so last week I told the story. I thought it was kind of funny. You all laughed. I'm standing by the doors quite a while after the service, facing out, getting ready to to leave, and someone comes and grabs me by the arm and whispers in my ear, I heard what you said about me. (laughs) So not only were Scott and Barbara here two weeks ago, they were here last week to hear me talk about them. So I got the nervous laugh, right? I was laughing out in the entryway super loud, and it's the nervous pat laugh because it's like, oh, brother, I can't believe I did that. I had no idea they were here. So, Scott, if you're here, welcome. Um, I know he's not because I said to him last Sunday, I said, are you going to be here next week too? He said no, and he texted me yesterday from California. So I don't think he's here. Um, Be careful what you say. I'm just glad I said something nice. (laughs) So, but that does lead me to referencing something he said that helps us understand 1 Peter. And that is, he said to me, 1 Peter is all about eschatology. And I realize it's not even 11 in the morning yet, and I just gave you a big word. But it's about eschatology. And if you can understand it's about eschatology, you can understand 1 Peter as well. Uh, To study eschatology is to study the end, the eschaton. Okay, So if you're studying prophecy, what's going to happen, you're studying eschatology. If you're um, talking about what happens when people die, um, you're, you're studying personal eschatology, the end for people, okay? And what he meant, and what I'm going to mean, and I think I can help you to understand this book and understand Christianity and life amidst suffering, it's about eschatology in this sense. Because of what Jesus has done, life, death, resurrection, ascension, because of what he did when he was here, the future, the eschaton, is secure. It is sure. It's not, I hope so. It's not in the balance. It's certain. Okay, He secured even what's in the future. On the other side of things, though, that doesn't mean in the here and now you're experiencing all of those benefits and blessings. The promises have been made to you. 
uh, spiritual realities are yours, but you're not yet experiencing them. You're going to experiencing, experience them later. Okay, now, and so that's what he meant. That's why Peter says we're elect at the beginning. He calls Christians elect. That is chosen by God, loved by God, on God's side, if you want to say that, elect. And then he uses the word exile. It's kind of like oil and water. Elect, God loves me and God cares for me and, and God is looking out for me, but I'm an exile? I don't belong? Yeah, and he's talking about in the here and now. Before Christ comes back in the world we're living in right now, we're exiles because this is not the new Jerusalem. Okay? That's what we're looking for in the end, in the future. And if you don't have that straight in your mind, you're going to be like the folks Peter is helping. He's not scolding them. There are scolding letters in the Bible. Okay? This is not one of them. This is encouraging. This is helping. This is mentoring your elect, yes. But in the here and now, your life is a life as an exile. Broken world, broken relationships, broken bodies, suffering, death. We have to keep that in mind. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to drop a little bit more big word knowledge on you, and I promise then we'll move on to more complicated things. <laughs> This is, this is how we can keep our sanity and we can actually live our Christian lives. This is important. If you have what technically is called an overrealized eschatology. can't believe I'm doing this on a Sunday morning. But here we go. This is theology class. If you have an overrealized eschatology, you're going to think all the stuff that's coming in the future is supposed to be happening now. You're going to be a charismatic. Um, you're going to think you should be healthy wealthy and happy all of the time. And if you're not, your Christianity is broken. It's the wrong kind. It's what you get, to get on TBN. It's what you get from lots of televangelists. So send money so you can be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And so I can buy a jet. Wink, wink. Okay, That's an overrealized eschatology. It's true you're going to be happy and healthy and wealthy, at least spiritually speaking, and it's going to happen in the future when Christ returns. But in the meantime, you're an exile. Okay, That's an overrealized eschatology. Okay, The opposite extreme is an underrealized eschatology. The future hangs in the balance. We can't know. We don't know. Worry, 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 worry. I have no confidence, no hope. I'm just a worry expert. And maybe I just need to do more, try harder, and maybe God might accept me. That's an under-realized view of the end. The Bible says, and we've read about it in First Peter, that you have an inheritance. Not because you earned it, but because of what Jesus has done. And it's guarded, First Peter 1 says. And it's kept in heaven for you because of what He's done. And so what First Peter's design... I'll, I'll stop with the tologies, okay? Um, where else can you go on a Sunday morning and get under-realized, over-realized eschatology? Man, try that today when you go to lunch at Chick-fil-A. Or don't, they're not open. First Peter's going to help us when we experience hard things in life because we're exiles. That's what it's going to do. 
I said to my younger kids today, you know, the sermon today might not really seem like it makes that much sense or it matters that much because a lot of times when you're young, you don't see as life is filled with suffering. But it is. And the older you get, the more you see how it's everywhere. Okay, it preps us, it prepares us. Some of you are in the midst of it. And some aren't. Elect. Oh, assurance. Exile. Good grief. It's kind of what I wanted to call the sermon. Good grief. There's this goodness, and it's amidst grief which is real. And it's hard. It's genuine. So what we're going to do today, that's a long introduction uh, with a lot of ology mixed in, but what we're going to do today is look at chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. Okay, Chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, I think is going to help equip us and encourage us and assist us. So how about if you'd look with me there in your Bible at verse 6, the first one, two, three, four words to start. It says, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice, you are happy, you're thrilled, you're uh, encouraged, transcending happiness. In this, you, 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 this warms you, this, this builds you up like nothing ever could. In this you rejoice. And what does he refer to by in this you rejoice? Well, what he's been talking about. What he's been talking about in verses 3 and 4 and 5, you have an inheritance. It is kept in heaven. It is guarded in heaven. It's not that it might happen. It's there already. Verses 3, 4, and 5. It is being protected. It's because of Christ and His resurrection. It's a living hope. It's not hope in hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not an I hope so hope. It's I have confidence because of what He's done hope. It's an assuring kind of thing. It's kept in heaven, ready to be lost? No. Ready to be accomplished? No. It says, ready to be what? Revealed. It is there behind door number two. Okay? And it's just a matter of opening the door and seeing it. And that happens when Christ returns, according to 1 Peter. Then we experience all of those great things and there's no longer any suffering. But in the here and now, he says, you rejoice in this. He's expecting, he's helping. Um, he's encouraging you, by the way, to have that be your greatest joy. So you can make it through life in the good times and the bad times. There's a lot of great stuff in life, right? There are a lot of great things, a lot of great joys in life. But when you make something other than Christ and what He's accomplished your supreme joy, and then those things are taken away from you, you're ready for a crash. And all sorts of disasters. In this, he says, you're, you, you rejoice, you, you greatly rejoice. This is your pre, supreme thing. That's why so many times I want to encourage you with the gospel above all other things. That's why faithful preachers are supposed to preach Christ and not themselves or other things or even all the different how-tos of life. So if we can have Him be our supreme joy and what He has for us, protected for us, then we can rejoice in that... And then we're ready for the dreaded comma. Sometimes I like commas. Sometimes I don't like commas. And this is a comma I'd rather not have. 
But if we're honest, God is honest with us, and this apostle Peter is honest with us. We have a comma, and then it says in verse 6, though, I wrote in my notes, the dreaded though. Though, now for a little while. And remember, he's, con- he, he's introducing that because he's talked already about in the last time, it's going to be revealed, but now for a little while, which sometimes seems like a lot of while. But in the big scheme of things, now for a little while, uh, if necessary, and, and, and if you're going through trials, apparently it is necessary, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I like what the King James Version says there just because it's a different kind of word and a different kind of image about grieved. It talks about heaviness. You're experiencing that heaviness. Maybe because that's how I feel when I'm down. I feel like I've got this heavy burden and it's just causing me to do things slowly. Now, for a little while comparatively, you're grieved. You're burdened. You're tested, is even the word. You're brought down. You're depressed. We can use all of these different kinds of words. You're, you're discouraged. <sighs> right? And that's what happens. That's what happens when you have conflict in your home. That's what happens when your body hurts and you get bad news. It's what happens when you lose someone you love. It's what happens when you are persecuted for being a Christian or having Christian living ethics. And the list goes on. Oh, heavy, burdened, down, bummer, bad news. And I always like to quote Jesus, not because I like the statement, but, uh, but I like to quote Jesus to show you Peter learned what he learned from Jesus. And Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble. Another translation says tribulation. Oh. Might not be what you hear from the million dollar smile that gets you all pumped up. But this is actually what's true. Various trials. Trials aren't one size fits all. Custom tailored just for you. And I say that obviously tongue in cheek, going for a little bit of humor. But in reality, since we're talking about in the context of First Peter, the God who cares, the God who cares for you personally, it uses the word elect. Carrying out a certain purpose. You have various trials. It's different. Designed just for you too. By the way, we're going to seek to strengthen your confidence in Jesus. I'm sighing just trying to preach the sermon.
We're not going to take the time to go there. You might want to jot down 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, which is a, a good cross-reference. It calls these fiery trials and says we shouldn't be surprised by fiery trials even, as if something strange were happening to you. I have to remember, we have a sin-affected world that therefore means death and suffering. So it shouldn't be a shocker to me, even though it is, and even though it's a real grief, when I realize more and more, and you realize more and more, that gravity is against us. It's not, it shouldn't really be a shocker. Sin-affected world filled with suffering. Oh, not only does it affect us physically, it affects us relationally. Not only does it do that, then ratcheting things up. When we are Christians, we're to experience conflict because we're Christians. Oh, and so I've been treated by some of the absolute worst treatment and perhaps some of you by, by professing Christians. So, I'm not trying to be a downer today. I'm not Debbie Downer. I'm not trying to be that person, but I am trying to be a pastor instead of a charlatan. greatly rejoicing, not ignoring the grief. Peter's not doing that. He's calling it grief. But greatly rejoicing so that we can get through the exile stuff. Our, put it another way, our eyes are focused on the king of the new Jerusalem who has made us inheritors. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. Now for some positive outcomes and benefits, okay? So let's go to verse 7 and keep things moving. So we're going to go to 7, 8, and 9, and then we're going to be done for this morning. And I think next week we're not going to talk about suffering, okay? I know it's been three weeks in. Verse 7 says, So that, oh, there's, there's intention involved. I said, you know, not one size fits all. It's custom made. So that there is purpose involved, even though it might be somewhat of a mystery to us. It's not entirely a mystery. So that the tested genuineness of your faith that's shorthand for faith in Jesus the resurrected living hope one we saw in our context so it's faith in him the tested genuineness of your faith in Christ more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ lots of good stuff there not hard to understand. It's going to be hard, but there, it's not without intention. It's actually testing. It's actually strengthening, designed to do that. Sure, when hard times come to mere professing Christians, they scatter like when the lights turn on and, 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 and they're bugs. But a true Christian, God uses the testing, He uses the trial to strengthen, and they don't run, they stay when there's conflict. And that's actually a positive thing to be strong as a Christian and not weak as a Christian. So God's going to use these multidimensional, custom-fit kinds of challenges in your life to strengthen your confidence in Christ. Kind of like gold, right? He's using the analogy. 
Which kind of gold would you rather have? Would you rather have gold that is filled with all kinds of impurities? Or would you rather have the refined gold? It's obvious we'd rather have the refined gold. But to be refined obviously means fire. It means something that's conflict. It's something that's intense. There's burning involved. He's using that, it seems, as the metaphor to, excel, to help you understand. There's a difficulty here. There's a purging kind of process. But it results in actually what's better. Hard to see in the short run, right? Easier to see in the long run. That's why so many times we are in the midst of something and we say, we, I have no idea what's happening here. Hopefully we say, but I'm going to keep trusting in Jesus. And then so many times it's years later and you can look back and say, I wouldn't want to do that again, but I see now what God did in my life. It doesn't always happen, but it definitely happens. I just said to my wife Molly the other day about a particular trial with someone we love, and I, I said I, something like, if they can only get through the next couple of years. I just chose a couple of years off the top of my head because it's, it's going to take time. But somehow, 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 it's in order that. And I just want you to remember somehow, somehow, somehow it's in order that. You didn't sign up for, for defective Christianity. Elect exile. We're looking for elect New Jerusalem. <laughs> but that's not now. Depending on your translation, it may word things in different ways. Uh, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's, we're, we're going to see that it, for sure we're going to see when Christ returns, the revelation, we're for sure going to see that it was all for good. We may see it now, but we may not see it. We can know, but that's when it's going to be made obvious and clear. The question is, is the praise and glory, and what else does it say? Um... An honor, is that referring to us or is it referring to God? Um, most oftentimes those things are ascribed to God. Like never before you will praise and honor and, and, and bring glory to God for this because you'll understand fully when Christ returns. If it's referring to us, it can grammatically in the, in the Greek New Testament. If it's referring to us, it's not trying to make us deity because by the way, if you receive a crown of glory, which the Bible says you're going to do, you're going to cast it at the feet of Jesus because it's because of him anyway. But it is true. It's going to lead to virtue in your life, but you're going to give God glory for the virtue anyway. Enduring faith is a tested faith is a good way to summarize what he says in our verses. An enduring faith, one that lasts, it's going to be there in the end, is one that's tested because it gets stronger. Most people use sporting analogies because it's something we can relate to and something lots of us love. The true athlete, the true competitor, doesn't just have the right kind of shoes, doesn't just wear the jersey, the true competitor is going to be one who suffers. 
And it's the suffering, actually, time in the gym, time in the weight room, whatever it is, doing the intervals. It's the suffering that proves they're the real deal. And they're not just a faker or a poser or whatever other kind of word you'd like to use. My worst suffering ever, and this isn't, doesn't compare to your real suffering. We're just using a sports analogy, right? Just like Paul used, uh, or Peter used a, a gold analogy. But the worst thing I think I've ever done in my life, and we haven't talked about bicycles for like a week, so I'm going to do it again. Um, is when my coach would have me do hill repeats. So he says, find a 90-second hill, and for the first 60 seconds, sit down and go as hard as you can, and the last 30 seconds, stand up and go as hard as you can, sprinting at the top. And we live in Omaha, Nebraska. He was from Kentucky, uh, you know, where there are mountains. So in the cycling community, um, there's a place called The Wall, and you don't know what the, where the wall is unless you're in the cycling community or if you live in Bennington. It's military. Military Avenue, and it is a 90-second hill, trust me. And you, it's my worst thing ever. I would, you, okay, do it 10 times. 30-second rest at the top, and then you do it 10 times, and your heart rate is like 190-something, and I'm not kidding. And you, in your mind, you're thinking to yourself, this is so stupid. I'm ready to go home. Get in my truck and leave. I've done this with a few in the room, and it's terrible. It's so bad. And, and you're thinking, you're, you're trying to justify in your mind, this isn't good for me. My heart rate is out of control. I'm going to have cardiac arrest. I am, you know, almost 50 years old. Um, it's 95 degrees out. No one in their right mind would do this. This is so stupid. I hate bikes. I hate coaches. I hate heart rate monitors. Right? And that's after you've done like three. It's the worst thing. Okay, enough stories about, about Pat. But I knew when I did that consistently in the summertime around race season, I knew that I knew that I knew with confidence I could be on the podium at a race. I was a real bike racer. I had a chance to win. I wasn't just a faker with a really cool, expensive bicycle and a lot of lycra, which is really cool too. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it's not. Hard suffering, proving something. And in sports, it's the hard work in the gym that shows it's not just the LeBrons on your feet. Okay, or whoever it is. The KDs in our house. We have quite the war that goes on about basketball teams. You really do the suffering, you're really a basketball player. You go through the suffering and you don't walk off the track spiritually. It is a testing and a proving of your confidence, not in the here and now, but in the king of the new Jerusalem who has an inheritance ready to be revealed for you. So I just want to encourage you to do the hill repeats, okay? Even though you don't want to do the hill repeats in life. And to find your hope 
in Christ and the reason you could do them to begin with is because of what he's already done for you. Let's keep going. Perspective. Suffering well. This is why. How about verse 8? Though you have not seen him, you love him. I love that because if you will, if you're, if you're a person who draws lines and circles and highlights things, you have not seen him. He's talking about Jesus. But verse 5 at the end there talked about ready to be revealed at the last time. So Peter had seen Jesus in all different scenarios. And he's writing to people who have come later, they've never seen Jesus. But he says, though you've not seen him, You love Him. Though you've not seen Him, He is going to return, and when He does, He's going to reveal what is for you by Him. It's not that you'll never see Him. We're not talking about fantasy land. We're not talking about elect with no future. No, you haven't seen Him. True. But you love Him, and He's already been talking about a time when you will see Him. That's what we're waiting for. Why does your why the hardship in the here and now? Because you haven't seen him yet. We learn in First Peter chapter three. When you see him, you'll be made like him. It's what we say in, in studying the Bible: glorification. No more suffering. No more difficulty. No more conflicts. Ready to be revealed at the last time. Okay, verse eight. Let's keep going. Though you do not now see him. You believe in Him. Why would you believe in Him? Well, we've already learned because He's the resurrected one who's returning. Rejoice with joy. That is inexpressible. You can't, you can't even explain how this works. You can't, you, can't, you can't articulate it fully. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And, and he doesn't mean it in a Plato sense, that your soul separated from your body and all this kind of stuff. No, he means it in the sense, the word that he uses is, is your, the, your being, who you are. This is your rejoicing at, at the very core of your being with your souls. This is going to be deliverance for you as a person. Because by the way, it's talking about bodily resurrection. And so what happens to us is we can have joy and rejoicing because of a coming event and it's going to be ultimate salvation, ultimate deliverance, ultimate freedom. And you're not going to get any more bad news. You're not going to have any more conflicts and you're not going to lose your job again and on and on and on and it goes. It's with a purpose, toward an end. There is an outcome to be obtained I liked what one author said when he summarized this up. We did not see Jesus. We do not now see Jesus. But we shall see Jesus. It's helpful. It shouldn't surprise us, as an aside, why people who um, health, wealth, happiness preachers say they've seen Jesus. The Bible says they haven't. 
Because they're half right. When you see Jesus, you'll be made like Jesus. And there won't be any more suffering and there won't be any more, any more conflict. I... I don't think she's here today, so I'm going to talk about her. Um, one of my favorite cooks is my sister-in-law, Carol. Carol Barber. She's a great cook. I love it when we go to their house for Thanksgiving. Okay, it's awesome. And one time we showed up at the barber's house and we're in the driveway. It's not summertime. The windows are closed. I got out of the car and I could smell the food. The doors were closed. It was permeating out of the house and my saliva glands were on overdrive. I was so happy. I couldn't believe how happy it was. I had a foretaste before I even opened the door. So all of this is a compliment. And it made me so look forward to the reality of experiencing eating whatever it is kind of curry we were going to have that day. Oh, it's almost lunchtime. Not supposed to talk about food. I'll hurry. Well, I'm not saying we can smell heaven. Then I would sound like one of those people on TV again. The guy who says, yeah, I wore this tie when I went to heaven and whenever I want to remember heaven, I just put this tie on again. I'm not making that up, by the way. I'm not trying to be that guy. And I'm not saying we can't smell heaven, but we know enough about it that as we are in the driveway, so to speak, we've got this anticipation, this kind of joy, this kind of this strong desire that transcends anything and everything else that can encourage us and give us perspective that it is coming and it's sure it's not something made up in your head. And that should encourage us to even be able to suffer and to be able to suffer well. Final story. In the Museum of the Desert, in the mountains of southern France, there is a commemorative site commemorating the Huguenot martyrs. I've never been there. You been? Dwight's been. I was pointing to my daughter because she was just in France. Evelyn's have been. Seriously? Awesome. You should come up here. Uh, We'll have open mic time. commemorating the time in France when King Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes in 1685 where Protestant public worship was made a crime. If you were caught in worship, as they would meet in the fields, you would be sentenced to the galleys, chained to a rowing bench and enslaved at the oars until you died. And apparently, the Evelyns can contest to this, uh, there's a museum there today where they have a model of the galley and they have a model of an oar there and beside it are inscribed these words of a Reformation Christian, galley slave, good words. My chains are the chains of Christ's love. My chains are the chains of Christ's love. Now, first, I want you to maybe be troubled by that. But in another sense, I want you to think about how could somebody ever say that? 
broken world, injustices, of which God is not the author, but using everything for the in order that, that we read about. In a testing and proving of genuine, legitimate faith that will result in honor and glory and praise. The very experiences that caused the distress can bring joy to Christians because we're Christians. And Christians can and should have perspective on things. Elect great joy, amazing, unspeakable, greatest thing ever unrivaled, no greater treasure, exile. But something is kept in heaven for me, and it's coming. It's coming. Please let me pray for you as an exile. If you're a Christian, I'll pray for your perspective because you're not just an exile, you're an elect exile. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for um, the Apostle Peter. Thank you that you uniquely chose him as someone who would speak with your authority even as an apostle. And thank you that you led him and guided him under the control of the Spirit to pen this letter to Christians who were suffering in various kinds of ways. My prayer for the men and women and boys and girls who are here this morning would be that if they've not trusted in Christ, that they would, that their life of challenges and suffering would not go without purpose. And for those who are here this morning who have trusted in Christ, please, supernaturally, in a way that only you can, according to their unique kind of trials, please encourage them and help them with perspective. Put people into their lives that can help them, maybe not just preaching at them, but enduring with them, that we might be able to, to be on a pilgrimage, so to speak, together, as we would be exiles together, looking forward to our citizenship together that is sure for us in Christ. Lord, I also would pray for everyone who's here today who's a believer in Christ, that you might use them to help other people, even to have perspective. We learned in 1 John that there are many false teachers in the world who say things in the name of Christ uh, that simply are not true. And so please use us, not just preachers, but also uh, all of us as believers, that we might be used by you to speak the truth to other people in a way that is loving and kind and truthful, um, that people might be able to honor Christ and glorify Christ and love Christ uh, in the midst of difficulties. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.